Thank you, Brother Clark. That reminds me uh, when he talks about, we kind of mentioned it this morning, Brother Jim brought it up about God putting a ball in our court, and we know that it, he is the one that does it, but he also blesses uh, preparation, and uh, you know, I've heard, and you probably heard it too, there's preachers, they'll say, oh, you use notes? Now, I never use notes. The Bible says, open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. Yeah, I've heard those preachers, and he usually fills it with hot air. Amen? So what we need is we need to spend time studying, and then God will give him something to bless. Amen? And so that's what we're going to try to do. Now, I say all that, and then tonight, everyone's going, boy, you're, you're full of hot air tonight, Brother Alltop, you know. But uh, we had a good afternoon uh, visiting with your pastor and enjoyed seeing him, and uh, he is improving and in good spirits over there, and he watched the services this, this morning, and Trust he's watching tonight, and so I appreciate him, appreciate the opportunity to be here. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bible tonight to Philippians chapter 4, chapter 4 of the book of Philippians, and um, a little anxious about this message. I, I brought it with me because the only reason I say that is I preached it only at the home church back in Danville, and, uh, but it was, uh, it was on my mind, and I want to preach what the Lord has given to me. Somebody was asking how things are going there in Danville, and, and uh, I can say that uh, as with most churches, there's good, there's bad, and there's ugly, but uh, we got more good than ugly and more good than bad, and uh, we've actually seen quite a, an increase in attendance and also in membership, and uh, some of those folks have come from the West Coast. We've got two families from California, and uh, they packed up and moved and uh, they, the one fellow told me recently, I thought this was funny, he moved, uh, him and his wife lived close to Los Angeles and moved to Danville, Kentucky. And he says, when I go out on my deck now here in Kentucky and I hear gunshots, he goes, it's the sound of freedom. Amen. He goes, in L.A., it was the sound of a crime that had just taken place. And so uh, there is a difference, amen. And so anyway, but uh, the Lord's been good to us and I have no complaints. God's been good to us and we're cooking along. We had a man... Uh, get saved uh, three months ago uh, that we have been praying for for uh, almost 15 years, ever since I came to the church. We've been praying for this man. And uh, I'll just give you a quick testimony about him. He had, uh, uh, I'd, in fact, it was probably 12, 13 years ago, I visited his home and uh, he threw me out and that was fine. He said, when I need you, I'll call for you. I said, okay. And I left. And you know, I, I didn't know this till later, but his wife told me that I earned his respect that day because he said, when I threw your preacher out, he, he honored that and left. And, uh, and it's never been my deal to hang around where I'm not wanted. <laughs> so yeah, it wasn't hard for me to do. But he said, when I was a kid, he said, I remember a preacher coming to talk to my dad and my, my dad was screaming at him to get out of his living room. He goes, he stayed and argued nose to nose with him for 20 minutes. It always made me angry that that preacher didn't honor him. Hey, that's that man's house. If he doesn't want me there, I'll see you later. And, uh, and so he would, uh, through the years, come and sit under the preaching and get under conviction. That's what the Spirit of God does through the gospel. And he finally came to see me, uh, and uh, he did. He said, when I need you, I'll call for you. And God gave him that time, and he came to see me. And I'd like to say he got saved the first time he came to see me, but uh, he kept saying, why won't God save me? I'm begging him to forgive me. I'm begging him to save me. And I said something I know you're not supposed to say, but I said it anyway, because it was true. And I said, you know why God won't save you. You're not willing to repent. And I know we've got a, a crowd of Baptists these days saying, you, you, you just preaching works. If you say repent, no, he was here's, here's what repentance is. It's a change of heart that says, I'm willing, I'm willing to go this way. I want to, I want a new life. I said, you want the pardon you don't want to go to hell. Who does? You want the pardon, but you're not willing to let God come in and rearrange your life. And uh, he had a particular sin that he enjoyed. And he, I'm, I, I don't, and you say, how do you know? That's just what was on my heart to tell him. And I said, God is, is not going to pardon people who can, want to continue in their rebellion. Amen. I know that gets people all nervous because everybody's going back going, did I repent? Did I do it right? It's a change of heart, a change of mind about your sin, about the Savior. It's you agreeing with God and saying, Lord, I want to go your direction. And so uh, he, he left that day unsaved, but boy, he showed up. I came into the lobby 
on a Tuesday morning, had to come out there and I noticed him sitting on the steps of the church weeping. And I went out and I said, uh, what's going on? And he looked at me and he said, I'm so lost. I'm so lost. And he said, I can't get loose. And he says, I am willing to repent. And it wasn't too long, amen, till the doors of refreshing came, if you know what I mean. And uh, he left rejoicing in the Lord. You say, did he get in? Well, he called me three days later crying and he said, uh, when I, he goes, what do you do? He goes, uh, what, what do I do when I come down there? He said, uh, during that invitation, I said, what are you coming down in the invitation for on Sunday? He goes, well, he said, I want to get up and tell people what Jesus Christ has done for me. And so he came up, no prompting other than he came up there, opened his Bible. He read second Corinthians five seventeen, and cried and told the church, thank you for praying for me. And, uh, he got saved and, uh, I baptized him about a month later and he's got some battles he's overcoming and some struggles that he's going through even now. But I do know this, that God started a work in his heart and it's been a blessing. It was a shot in the arm for the church and just a real blessing. And he said, I want to come down and pray. He goes at the church that I know prayed for me. And so we praise the Lord for that. Those are some of those exciting things that you can get excited about. Then that's worth getting excited about. Amen. All right, Philippians chapter 4 tonight, I want to help you on an area of spiritual warfare that gets overlooked a lot, and I think it is the key to the overcoming Christian life, one of the main keys, I'll put it that way. Let's read together, Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved And Paul is, of course, writing from prison when he writes this. And he's calling them, he calls them brethren, dearly beloved, his joy, his crown. And he says, dearly beloved, a second time. And I know now why he said all that. Because in verse 2, he says, I beseech Eodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. There's a little static between a couple of ladies there at the church at Philippi. Now, can you imagine, and this is not the message tonight, but I just want to stop here for, and pause as we look over this scripture. Can you imagine being at the church of Philippi when this letter shows up? Everybody gathers together. Hey, we got a letter from Paul. There's a letter from Paul, and, and the preacher's going to read it tonight. Oh, boy. We all get down there, and he said, I love you guys. You're dearly beloved, longed for. And uh, I beseech Rachel and Rochelle. <laughs> now, by the way, notice he says, I beseech Yodius. And beseech Sintiki. He says, I beseech Rachel and I beseech Rochelle. Because had he said, I beseech Rachel and Rochelle, Rochelle would have turned to Rachel and said, he mentioned you first because he knows you're the problem. (laughs) But he gave him equal time and an equal command because that contention and only by pride cometh contention was causing some trouble. All, he kept talking all through this letter. He's talking about get on the same page, same mind, one mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He loved this church, Paul did. And he was concerned about the static between two ladies down there. So he says, let them ladies get right so we can have revival. So I don't know who, what two ladies are sideways tonight. But get right with God so we can have revival. And don't look around right now. You'll give it away. All right. Verse 3. He says, I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow. So he's calling on some unnamed spiritual man. And if you're going to deal with two upset women, you've got to be spiritual and filled with the Holy Ghost. See Acts 6 on that one. I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. These are saved people he's talking to. He says in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, Whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. So let's pray one more time and ask the Lord to help us. Father, I pray, Lord, tonight that you would help me to get the thoughts across, the the truths that you've given me across. 
that it would help this church, East River Baptist Church. I don't know who's struggling with what, but Lord, you do. And Lord, this message was on my heart today. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help East River Baptist Church. I pray you'd bless them back in Danville tonight at Bluegrass Pike. Lord, use Brother Gary as he stands and holds forth the word of life. Thank you for these faithful men in this church, Lord, that's allowing us to continue and have service. The work of God presses on. Lord, we pray for Pastor Hoots that you'd be with him tonight. And I pray, Lord, that you'd open hearts and still minds and, Lord, help people to consider these things we're going to look at tonight. We ask it all in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Now, there is from verse 4 to verse 8 what I call a recipe for rest. Now, you noticed and you've heard it before, I'm sure. In verse 7, the Bible speaks of the peace of God. Now, there is another phrase in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, talking, talk, it's called the peace with God, and uh, those two are different. Romans 5, 1, speaking of our justification before God, it says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. How do we get peace with God? By believing upon the one who died and shed his blood on the cross. The Bible says that Jesus Christ made peace uh, through the blood of his cross. And so we know that we have peace with God if we have come to God on his terms, which is through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, through his blood, through what he did at Calvary and the fact that he rose from the dead. But after you find and, and, and have obtained peace with God in salvation, now we are given a recipe here of how to maintain the peace of God. That has to do with having a calmness about us, having a control about us, having uh, our feet on the ground, sober and, and grave, those kind of things. In other words, uh, having peace. That's all it is, just, just having peace. And I'm going to tell you, we live in a society that is losing their peace if they ever had it anyway. I mean, people are just about, uh, I mean, I don't want to get into a bunch of stories I could tell you over the last two years since uh, what happened in 2020. There was a lot going on that year, but we're still feeling the effects of it. It may never get over all of the effects of what it's done to the minds of people and, and their thought processes and all of these things. And you see depression, you see discouragement, you see, um, I, I, I don't know what the numbers are, but I've had to deal with, uh, with over the last couple of years with suicide, with people doing things that are uncharacteristic of them. I mean, there's an attack on our society. There's an attack on people, and there's certainly an attack always on the church. And so in the midst of all kinds of people will say, well, you ask them, how are you doing? They say, well, under the circumstances, I'm doing well. You know, we shouldn't say that because we should never be under our circumstances. Get on top of them. Okay, God has equipped us. This is not just some pop psychology, don't worry, be happy kind of stuff. There is a recipe here, and I tell, I told our church, if you're gonna, if you're gonna have the peace of God, you have to follow the recipe exactly as God gives it. People who start messing with the recipe change. I, I, I told Heather sometimes she, you know, she finds out what's my favorite this, what's my favorite that. And you know, and you're like, man, this is so good. And she makes it. Well, then somehow something happens. The wives and ladies begin to think that, well, you know, I've served it to him that way all these years. I'm going to try something a little different. And we'll change things up, but I'm not going to tell him. Because he's going to like this even better. And you sit down, you're going, hey, this is my favorite deal. You start eating, you're going, ah. And you don't want to say this is no good. If you're a, if you're a wise man, you won't say that. You, if you're a wise man, you'll not say this isn't how mom made it. But I can tell you this, I've been, I've told her, I said, did, did you do something different? Yes, I used this, this, and this. It's like, well, don't do that, please. <laughs> Stick with the recipe. Stick with the one that brought you. Just don't, don't change anything. Don't, don't add, don't change. If it's calls for sugar, it didn't say stevia. <laughs> if it calls for butter, yeah. amen, give me the butter. All right, that's what makes it wonderful. So my point is this, it's not, it's not, it's not cooking class tonight. I'm just talking about a recipe. When God gives it to you, you got to have all the ingredients or you're not going to have the end result is not going to be what God said it would be. He said, you have the peace of God. If you praise him, he said, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. We see that that's praise. That's getting excited about what the Lord has done. And many times the way to get yourself excited is to go back. We need to go back and revisit Calvary on a regular basis. 
I told you this morning, and I'm thinking on these things and working on messages about preaching the gospel to yourself continually. The gospel's for saved people just like it's for lost people. Amen. That's where you live. That's where you get your, your strength. That's where you get your encouragement is at Calvary. So rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And then he, so we see praise. And number two, in verses six and seven, you're told to pray. And it's not the message tonight. I'm just introducing this. When he says, be careful for nothing and everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And then look here, the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So we see we need to be praising the Lord because there's always something to praise him about. And the things that trouble us, listen, the Bible, notice this. He doesn't just say, hey, be careful for nothing. Because just to give an empty command like that, don't tell people, hey, don't worry about it. Just don't worry, be happy. Well, that sounds good, but that won't work. If I understand right, the guy that wrote that song took his own life. Okay, so that's an empty thing. But God does give that command. But then on the flip side of the command, he says, rather than be troubled, when he says, be careful for nothing, that means don't be full of care for anything. Now, that's a pretty tall command. Because there are things to, it seems to me, that you ought to be concerned about. And he's not talking about, he's saying, don't let it trouble you. Don't let it fill you with care to where you can't rejoice in the Lord. Well, what does he tell us to do? He doesn't leave us with an empty command. He flips the the coin, if you will, and he says, here's what you do instead. Rather than worry, rather than let your heart be full of care, he says, start praying and bring your request. Ask God what you want. And listen, he said, but do it with thanksgiving. And you say, well, I don't know if God... Uh, wants me to talk to him about these things. He's concerned with everything. You know, a great, a great truth you'll find in Luke 24, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're walking along that Sunday afternoon of the resurrection. And here, I picture it in my mind. I see two dirt roads coming together. And I see these two disciples coming and Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior coming down there. And God didn't allow them to recognize him. But he walks up and he says, hey, what things are you talking about that you're so sad? You know how he knew? Through their countenance. And they, and, and they said, well, where have you been, basically? Don't you know the things that have been going on in Jerusalem? You know what the Lord says? He says, what things? You know what that indicates? He wants to hear what's in your heart. Jesus Christ was completely aware of what had gone on in Jerusalem. Not only was he aware of it, he was the man that was hanging on the cross. That endured the shame and despised the shame and endured all the cross and all the pain and all the sufferings that go with that. And he says, well, what things? And tell me, unburden your heart. Amen. So God wants to hear from us. So pray, let your request be made known unto God. And then here's the thing that I want to get to tonight in verse 8. He gives you a list of things to think on. Think on these things. So we see this recipe is you need to be praising the Lord. There's always something to brag on the Lord about. You need to be, rather than worrying and full of care, you need to be praying about these things. And then thirdly, here's the other part of the last part of the recipe, and I want to emphasize this tonight, is proper thought life. And you say, well, you can't control your thoughts. The Bible says you can. The Bible says you can. And this is the area that I believe is one of the most overlooked areas of spiritual warfare in the Bible and or, or in, in Christianity. But listen to these, listen to this verse, these verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You know them well, you should. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Do you know what a stronghold is? A stronghold is a military term. And listen, a stronghold is where you're not defeated, but the enemy has taken up a strategic place on the battlefield and it's making victory very difficult because they have a stronghold in an area that should belong to you. Are you getting that? Listen, we're in a war as Christians. Uh, you joined up into an army when you got saved. And so you have to war a good warfare and fight a good fight. And the Bible says right here that the weapons of our warfare, it's not knives and glocks and all that stuff. I'm not against owning those. 
I'm just saying that when it comes to this battle, there's something else going on. It's a spiritual thing. And he says this, those strongholds, where are they at? Verse 5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. And it says, and bringing into captivity every thought, not some thoughts, but every thought. God would not give a command that he would not empower you to perform. So he says, here's what you got to do. You can get a stronghold in your mind through your imaginations, through your thought life and the things that come into your mind. And he says, what I want you to do is I want you to take every thought captive and to bring it under the obedience of Jesus Christ. People ask this question all the time of pastors and especially in our crowd, the independent Baptists. And I'm, I'm not here to start a controversy tonight. Uh, there is no controversy. I'm just going to tell you this. People will ask the pastor, and I always felt like my answer was right, but it was correct, but it was incomplete. It wasn't an incorrect answer I would give to this question, but it was incomplete. It didn't give the whole story. People come up, and they'll be arguing about it, and they'll say, Preacher, do you believe that a Christian can be possessed with an unclean spirit? My answer was always, no, they cannot. Now, here's why I say that. According to 1 Corinthians 6, what? No, you're not. That your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own. For you're bought with a price. The blood of Jesus Christ purchased you when you were born again. You belong to Him. What purchased you was the most precious currency in the universe, and that is the divine blood of God. Say, well, it was Jesus' blood. It wasn't God's blood. Au contraire, mon frère. Acts 20, verse 28 says it was God's blood. Okay, Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. Listen, when John was leaning against him at the Last Supper, his ear was up against the heart that was pumping the divine payment that was about to be made for mankind to redeem them. Purchase, the purchase price, the blood of Christ, make it, the ownership is never in question. But I always felt like that that left us open because why do there seem to be so many Christians in bondage to unclean things. So you can't be possessed completely with what's going on. Here's the battleground. Here's the answer. Here's the more complete answer. And there may be even more to it than this. But he can't get in your body to take over. But he can get in your head. And here's the thing. The adversary does not care that he can't get into your body and take over. Because if he can get into your mind, he can control you from there. Do you understand? Listen, that right there talking about a stronghold, that's a military term. He's talking about warfare. And he says, you got to get a hold of your thought life. Because you know something, we don't think about it, but that's how the devil attacks Christians. Is in their minds. And how they're thinking. Listen, John chapter 13. <clears throat> Judas Iscariot before, verse 26, before Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, the Bible says Satan, listen, having put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. Okay, he said, well, he was a lost, he was called a devil already. All right, how about Ananias and Sapphira? Those are saved people. And listen, you get in Acts chapter 5 and, and Peter says, why has Satan filled thine heart? Your heart and your mind are connected. He said, he filled your heart with a plan. Amen. And he, and listen, they, they, we know their, their problem. There was an old preacher recently preached a message and people were confused when he started the message because he read a whole chapter there, uh, in, in the book of Mark about, uh, the rich young ruler. Then he went to Acts 5 and he read the whole story about Ananias and Sapphira. Then he went to Luke 14 and read about the three people with all the excuses. And, and then he went, the, the, the fourth passage, um, that he read, um, what was it? Uh, I, I can't remember now. He, he read all these passages and, and, um, he finally, he says, now this message tonight is, he goes called one for the money. That's the rich young Euler, two for the show and an ice and Sapphira three to get ready and four to go. I think he read something about the rapture there at the last, but the point is this, I know Mark two, the guys that were carrying his buddy with born by four. You know, so some of you appreciate that. If you're a preacher, write that down. See if you can work something up. But the point is this. The point is this, amen, that he gets in the head. He got in Ananias and Sapphira's mind. He got in David's mind about, hey, you know something? Why don't you check and see how big your people are now? 
All of that stuff, just suggesting things to the mind. He can do that. He is, a, he is an adversary as a roaring lion walking about, seeking whom he may devour. He can't get into the house, the body. Brother Jim pointed that out, 2 Corinthians 5, 1. The, the house is the body. But I tell you what he'll do. He'll walk around the property and check all the gates. You leave a gate unhinged, he's coming in. He can't get in the house, but he can get on the property. And where does he mostly get entrance into? He gets entrance into the mind, into the thoughts. And if that wasn't the case, why would God show us these things? Do you realize the Bible says in 2 Timothy 4, that in the latter times, it says some shall depart from the faith. Why? Giving heed to seducing spirits. Now listen, you, you know what heed means? It means obedience. You're supposed to heed the word of God. Well, you can't heed the word of God unless you've heard the word of God. So if they're heeding seducing spirits, as again, that's talking about the church. You can't depart from a faith that you haven't been a part of. It says, <clears throat> departing from the faith, it says giving heed to seducing spirits. That means if they gave heed, they heard from them. And I'm going to tell you something, in the church house these days, the devil is whispering things into people's minds and creating all kinds of confusion and havoc. Let me show you how this works. Turn to Genesis chapter 20. Keep your Bible handy. We're going to go to several places tonight and I want to show you something. Your thoughts matter. Because if the devil can get you thinking wrong, he will get you to behave wrong. And you're going to see in these passages that we're going to look at from the Old Testament, listen, that your thoughts will produce your feelings. Now, I'm not trying to get all psychological and go psychiatric on you tonight. I'm telling you, the Bible, God, our creator, knows how we function because he created us. So when you get in the Bible, you'll find this out. Your pastor said today, he said, I knew when I went into that surgery, one of the results would be there's overwhelming feelings of despair and discouragement when you've been through a surgery like that. And, and, and they know that that's just universal. So he says, knowing that you can, you can ignore your feelings because you know, I know the truth that this will not last. Now, you know what's a, a bad thing? I, I've learned a good thing. Don't ever tell somebody you shouldn't feel that way. And here's why. You cannot control your feelings directly. Write that one down. You cannot control your emotions directly. You say, why? Because you feel what you feel. You can't help it. If you're angry, you feel angry and you can feel it. If you're depressed, you feel the depression. And for somebody to say, I oh, shouldn't feel that way. That doesn't help the situation. That exasperates it. So you can't control directly your emotions, but there is something you can control that creates those emotions, and that's your thoughts. Because your emotions and your feelings come from and are created by how you are thinking. Look at Genesis 20 with me. Let's take our time and look at these passages tonight. Verse 1, the Bible says in Genesis 20, Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south country. And dwelled between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gerar. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, thou art but a dead man. For the woman which thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, wilt thou slay also a righteous nation? Said he not unto me, and by the way, when he says also a righteous nation, you know what he's talking about? Chapter 19, he knew what the judgment was down in Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, hey, we know you dropped the bomb on wicked nations, but are you going to slay a righteous nation as well? Say, why did he say that? Look at this. Said he not unto me, she is my sister. And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocency of my hands have I done this. God said unto him in, in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. Now therefore restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet. And he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live. 
And if thou restore her not, know thou that thou shalt surely die, thou and all that are thine. Therefore Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their ears, and the men were sore afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said unto him, What hast thou done unto us? And what have we, I'm sorry, what have I offended thee that thou hast brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? Time out right here. This isn't the message, but I got to make a comment right here. What did Abimelech have as far as light? He didn't have a written Bible. It's not been written yet. He didn't have a church. It's not been established yet. He didn't have the indwelling Holy Ghost. That ministry hadn't started yet. He didn't even have a preacher. What did he have? His conscience. And that conscience was in tune with the moral law of God. This is before the law was given. So these people that say, well, what about the heathen that have never heard? Abimelech is a heathen. He's a Gentile. And you know something? He ain't ever heard about Jesus Christ, but he knew this. He knew something Bill Clinton doesn't know. He knew, amen, that adultery is a great sin. And there's a lot of them that don't know that, by the way. He just happened to come to mind. My point is, here's a leader, and all he's got is his conscience, but it was enough light for him to say, Lord, in the integrity of, of my heart, the innocence in my hands, I've done this. They told me this. I didn't know. So he comes down, he tells Abraham, he says, hey, why did you do this? Thou hast brought upon uh, my kingdom a great sin. Thou hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. Now watch. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What sawest thou that thou hast done this thing? But Abraham said, Because I thought, Surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. What did Abraham think? He thought, These people don't know God, these people don't fear God, they're going to see how gorgeous my wife is, and it's off with my head. So, I tell you what, hon, I got a plan. I'm thinking that they don't know God, so would you do me a favor and just tell them that you're my sister, and I'll tell them that, you know, you're my sister, and you tell them I'm your brother. You know why? You know what he was thinking? You know what it created? His false perception created fear in his heart. And because of that fear, that emotion, you can't help his fear, but you can't help what he was thinking. He could have helped that. And so his false perception of the whole scenario, the whole situation, created fear in him. And that fear made him make a bad decision. Now, I think of this, and I... You know, everybody's got opinions about all this, but let's face it. There is some really bad misinformation. You talk about controlling people through fear. Has anybody seen that in the last two and a half, three years? I mean, I'm driving down the road and I look over at somebody and, and I'm not making fun. We, we buried, I, I, I did two funerals because of COVID. We're not mocking people that lost loved ones. We're not mocking death. None of that stuff. But I am telling you that there's people, powers that be, that took advantage of all of that. And they know that if you can put fear in a man's heart, how do you get fear in his heart? By making him think a certain way. So when you're driving down the road and you pull up to a red light and you look over in a car, and there's only one person in the car, and the windows are rolled up, and they've got an N95 mask on. They're afraid. Why? Somebody got in their head and it's controlling their thinking and it's produced fear and the fear creates reactions so listen abraham had a false perception about abimelech and gerar and it caused him to 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 be afraid that was the emotion that was produced because of his thought life and you know what he thought wrong totally wrong isn't that the way it usually is you get to thinking about something, and then when you get all of the facts put together, that's why the Bible warns in 1 Timothy 6, 4, it says evil surmising. It's the only time the word shows up in your Bible. Surmising? What is that? That is where you, you have three pieces of a five-piece puzzle, and you color in the last two parts. Isn't that how it is? And it, notice what the Bible says about evil surmising. That's your thoughts. You're thinking, you're surmising. <clears throat> that right there, it doesn't say blessed 
surmising. It says evil. Because our fallen nature is such that we go to the negative every time in our thoughts. I mean, you know, I've, I've had this, I'm sure many pastors have, where someone will come and, and man, it's, it's getting tense between them and another church member. I remember a lady one time coming in going, uh, so-and-so thinks that I'm carnal and uh, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, why do you think that about them? Oh, I look over and I can see them looking at me on Sunday morning. Okay, well, why, why is it not this? Why is it not, there's the lady standing there with the hymn, hymn book, and uh, she's singing next to her husband. She looks over, and we'll call it Mrs. Williamson. I don't know if there's a Williamson here tonight. No offense if that's your last name. I'm just pulling a name out of the hat, all right? She looks over at Miss Williamson, who's staring over at her, singing with her husband. Why doesn't she say, honey, look, look, there's Miss Williamson staring at me. I bet she's been praying for us all week. We need, to, we need to pray for her tonight. She's such a blessing. That'd be blessed surmising. It doesn't happen that way. What's she looking at? You know, I know why she's staring at me. And this was the answer given. I said, why do you think they're looking at you funny? You know, I can't help but think about the cigar commercial right here. <laughs> and she said, she saw me at Kroger and I was wearing a pair of blue jeans. Oh, Really? So now she's giving you dirty looks in church. I don't get it. You say, what is that? That's evil surmising and it has to do with your thought life. And it gets your emotions all stirred up. And people like that do not have the peace of God. You say, why? Because their minds got them all stirred up. Because they're thinking one thing and their thoughts that have not been brought under the control of God are producing emotions in them like it produced in Abraham fear. And it causes them to say dumb things and make bad decisions. Are y'all following this? And when he says think on these things, that's a command. Why? Because he knows that in our fallen condition, our mind is a trap. It's a dangerous place. It's an, it can be attacked by the adversary. And it's all it's him breathing thoughts into our head. I don't know how he does it, but he does it. And we have to be aware that he does it. Look at 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. Here's another example. You know what? You know, you say, how did you prepare this message? I went through the Bible looking up every time some man said, I thought. And every time sinners go to thinking, <laughs> apart from God, it's bad news. It is always bad. It's always negative. I thought. Look at 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. And you know the story. <coughs> There's a man named Naaman, captain of the host. He has leprosy, which we heard about in Sunday school. Picture of sin. And there's no help for him there. And uh, he was a great and a man of valor and might. And the Holy Ghost said that about him. He was a good man in the, in the human sense, in the earthly sense. And there's a little maid that had been taken captive. And she's still got joy in her heart. And she's working for Naaman's wife. And she says, boy, if he was down where I'm from, the prophet could sure help him. So he sends about, you know, the prophet, you know the story if you read your Bible. Look at verse, look at verse uh, 9 with me. So Naaman came. He finds out where Elisha, the man of God, is at. Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him saying, go and wash in Jordan seven times. Isn't this amazing? Elisha's checking Naaman's pride. He doesn't even come out. He's in the house. I don't know if he's doing his laundry. I don't know what he's doing. But he sends the assistant pastor out, Gehazi. Go out and tell him to dip seven times down there in the river Jordan. Go out and tell him to do that. So it says here, Elisha sent a messenger unto him saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. If I had leprosy, that's all I'd have to hear. 
Because you know what? You got leprosy. Nobody back home can help you. Your status in life cannot help you. Nobody knows up there. Your king doesn't know what to do. But amen, this little servant girl knows where to send you. You've come down there, but the man of God didn't come out. He sent a a man out to tell him, hey, go down to the Jordan seven times down, seven times up on the seventh trip up. You'll be fresh, clean. Just like that. If I had leprosy, I'd say, hallelujah, let's do it. Where's the river at? But what happens? Verse 11. But Naaman was wroth. And he went away with his leprosy, by the way. And it says, and said, behold, next two words. I thought. What are you doing thinking? (laughs) You came looking for an answer and you got it. So what's going on here? This, because of his thoughts, is a false expectation that produced anger when his expectation was not met. Now, you're going to be able to apply this message. You know, I heard your pastor say something one time I never forgot. He said, sometimes the preacher just takes your, your brown grocery sack and puts the groceries in there, and then it's up to you to go home and make the meal with it. So you might have to take some of this stuff and apply it later. But listen, we saw a false perception that created fear in Abraham. Here we see a false expectation that creates anger. You know why people leave churches and, and write nasty things about pastors on Facebook many times? Because they thought it was going to be this way. They thought the church operated this way. They had an expectation. Everybody that comes to those doors has a certain expectation. They've already got in their mind. Even unchurched people will come in and begin to tell you what to do because they have in their mind, they have thoughts about how church is supposed to be and they come with a whole list of expectations whether they know it or not. And usually, as your pastor pointed out one year when he came up and preached at our church, they come with a, uh, their, their expectations are unscriptural and unreasonable many times. And so what happens when their expectations are not met? Where their expectation comes, how they're thinking. They get frustrated. They get angry and leave. This man went away in a huff. And he still got his leprosy dripping off his elbows. He's angry because you know what he wanted? I'm a, I'm a man of valor. I'm a big shot. Here I am. And, uh, you know, here we show up and Elisha's in there doing whatever he's doing. He says, go out and tell him this. And you say, well, what did he expect? Well, keep reading. Look at it. Second Kings chapter 5. He says this. Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand, call on the name of the Lord his God, and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. He wanted a little Benny Hinn action. He wanted a laser show and a smoke machine and a white suit. Amen. And just... You know, we got one guy in our church that that when he first got saved, he said, I didn't know any better. And he goes, I went to one of them healing meetings. And he said, uh, you know, I I don't know if he had back trouble or what, but he went up and he thought, I'll go up and see what they can do. And they had the healing line going. And he said, there was a couple of spotters. And he said, man, that guy put his palm up against their hand. I mean, big show, man. And he said, he'd shove. And he said, so he goes, he kept shoving. I thought, well, you're going to shove harder if you're going to knock me over because I ain't playing no games. So he said, he finally, you know, they kind of, Put his legs in there where he went back. And he said, I laid down. He said, I'm sitting there going, I don't know if I'm healed, but nobody told me when I'm supposed to get up. So he just laid there for a while until he finally got embarrassed. Well, I guess I'll get up and go back to my pew. Some of y'all looking like, what's the problem with that? Amen. I'm just saying this. There's a lot of expectations people have. Naaman was the first charismatic. He said, I got leprosy, but if you're going to heal me, I want this thing to be, I mean, a big time show. Don't tell me to go down and jump into some muddy river down here in Israel and dip around, come out all wet. He, listen, what, look what he goes on to say. He goes, are not Abana and Farpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? In other words, my church is better than your church. Our rivers are better than your river. You got leprosy. What are you thinking? Oh, I know what you're thinking. You came with expectations that were not met. Your pride gave you some expectations. He says, may I not wash in them and be clean? Uh, The answer, no. (laughs) No, you can't. 
We told you what to do. You have leprosy. You came to see me. Here's what you do. Real simple. Nothing complicated about the directions. But when you have false expectations and your thoughts, you're going down there going, boy, this guy's going to come out and say, we are so thankful you're here. And man, we're really going to do up a big circus right here to heal you of your leprosy. So the Bible says this, so he turned and went away in a rage. And if he'd have had a Facebook page, Elisha would have been mincemeat that day. And thank God there's some wise men around this man. His servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldest thou not have done it? How much rather than when he saith to thee, wash and be clean. In other words, they talked a little sense into him. Thank God he didn't go back with leprosy and die with it. And he would have. But his servant says, hey, you know, he didn't ask you to do anything hard. You got leprosy. We don't even like being around you. <laughs> you know, so why don't you at least try this out? Maybe this would really help our relationship, you know. And um, down the water he goes. He went down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again, like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Boy, his hard attitude toward Elisha, it was no longer false expectations. But we, we can't get into all that right now, but I'm showing you this. He was angry. That's an emotion. Fear, anger, bitterness, depression. Those are emotions. Where do they come from? You can't control them directly. They come from your thoughts. You have to deal with your thoughts. False expectation made him angry when, it didn't, when his expectation didn't get met. You know, that's, that goes on, and I won't belabor the point, but that goes on in churches all across the South. People have an idea what the pastor is supposed to do. And false, ex, you know what I heard a man say, I'm, I wrote it down, he said, expectations ruin relationships. You need scriptural expectations of people. Not tradition. My wife, we were talking, I said, can you, I said, help me out with this message. I said, give me some examples of false expectation. And she says, oh, well, I can do that. She said, every young girl that gets married has expectations about what that husband did. She's picturing you helping with the laundry and standing, helping cook and clean up the kitchen. And she says, those are your expectations. And she goes, but then she goes, you're cleaning up the kitchen with a baby on one hand, a toddler wrapped around the other leg, and your husband's in the living room playing guitar. Now, I don't, I don't know who she's talking about. But you're saying, Lord, I didn't expect this. Sorry to bother you there. Honey, you got to listen to this song. I, I'm excited. This is a great song. And I've been trying to get this chord substitution. I think I finally got it. Oh, hang on. I'll cinch that garbage bag off for you. Since you look like you got your hands full. Here you go. Now, listen to this. So you got to adjust your expectations to reality. <laughs> but you know what? Hey, that's how marriages end up. In, and, and listen, men have some expectations. They're real simple. <laughs> and I won't get into all that. <laughs> I'm just saying that many times our expectations foul the relationship. Why? Because those expectations are just junk that we got from the movies. Or what somebody told us or what we always thought. Think on these things. Here's what God says. Because when you have false expectations, it's going to create emotions. And many times it's anger and rage. Go one more place. Go to Psalm 73. Talking about thoughts. And we'll, we'll, we're going to find before this message is over in just a few minutes, we're going to see, well, what did God say to do? We're going to go back to 2 Corinthians 10. It's real simple how to handle this. But it takes a while to learn how to apply it properly. But look here at this guy. We see this guy, his name's Asaph. And he says in Psalm 73, he's given, this whole chapter is an amazing chapter. It's a, it's a man's testimony. After he's gotten right with God and God had to knock him upside the head and get his attention and wake him up. But here's what he says. He starts his testimony off. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. I'm in Psalm 73, verse 2. He says, but as for me, my feet were almost gone. So he's referring back to something he went through. He says, my steps had well nigh slipped. I was, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death. 
but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. He's talking about the ungodly. He's watching. He's a saint of God in the Old Testament, but he's watching the people who ignore God, reject God. He's, he's looking at their life. And he says, Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. He's describing the ungodly. Therefore his people return hither and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, how doth God know? And, and is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, here it is. These are the ungodly. Who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. So he's, he's, he's making now a calculation. He's, he's, he's doing the math, if you will, in his head. And he's looking at, at, at people who have children who won't care for them. And he's looking maybe at himself or someone he knows and says, well, why won't God allow them to have children? But he lets these people who don't care about them have them. Why do the wicked prosper? How are we doing? Why, why is it that so-and-so has perfect health? And here's the man. I, I, met, a, I met a preacher uh, Friday night. He come up and, man, he was a blessing. Real mild-mannered, meek man. And uh, he came over and said, Brother Altop, I want to introduce myself. And he told me who he was. And we shook hands. And he said, it was good to hear you tonight. We were in McQuaidy, Kentucky. He said, I've got to go. My wife had her first chemo treatment. He's in his 30s. He said, and she's not feeling real well. They had sang that evening some special music. And um, he said, she's not feeling real good. I need to get her back to the house. I said, yes, sir. So the pastor uh, who I'd preached for Friday night, he said, have you ever heard that man preach? I said, I have not. He said, what a preacher. And he says, but he's been through it, brother. And he says, he's going through it now. His wife has fast-moving, aggressive cancer. She's had surgery. She's going through chemo. And he says, on top of that, they lost their five-year-old son to a hit-and-run driver. And he goes, he, he was in the front yard with his boy when it happened. And he said, but my, he said, his faith in God. And he said, he is a preacher. He goes, it's, he just, he goes, when he preaches, he goes, it just, it just touches your heart. And, and I remember you would never know that by looking at him. But you know what the first carnal thought is? Why? Why? Why God? Why would this guy who's serving you and believes your book and loves you and wants to have children and 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 yet one and the man that hit his son, the the state trooper there in Kentucky that was responding, was coming toward the accident and happened to see a car with a broken mirror, and was able to turn around and run the guy down. But you think about these tragedies and you say, hey. Why would God, come on, I'm not asking you to say this. We don't have a right to ask this, but we still do in our hearts. Asaph is letting you in on his thought life. He says, why do the wicked prosper and the ungodly seem to have it easy? That's his thoughts. Look at verse 13. He says, verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. He said, if I should uh, say I will thus speak, Behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. Watch it. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Now listen, what's he thinking? He's thinking God is unfair. That's his thought. He lets you in on his thought life. And people have been there before. You don't have to admit it out loud, but that's the human nature. God, why? So he has a false calculation about how God deals with humanity and what he dishes out and what he keeps back and what he does. He's, that's what's going on in his mind. And what has it created in his heart? Two things, self-pity and bitterness toward the Lord. Those are emotions, pity and bitterness. Do you all see that? He says, I, I thought to know this. It's too painful. He, he's questioning God. That's his thought life. But you know what is amazing? Look what he says next. He said, I thought that if I thought it was too painful for me, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until, until what? I went into the sanctuary of God. So you know what? In modern terms, what he's saying, I was thinking that way until I went to the church house, until I went into the sanctuary. Look at verse 22. He says, so foolish was I and ignorant Our thoughts many times are foolish and ignorant. You say, well, what will prevent it? 
You need to, you need to put yourself in the path of Bible believing truth constantly. You need to renew your mind on a daily basis with the truth. Because the only way, remember what we were talking about uh, in 2 Corinthians 10, and you can go there and I'll be done, is the fact that God told you what to do. He told you where the stronghold would be. He told you that the warfare is not carnal, it's not physical, it's spiritual, and it has to do with our imaginations and our thoughts and our, and our thought life. And so what does he say? He says, you're to cast down imaginations, every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. He says, bringing into captivity every thought. I think it was your pastor that said this. There's a man's public life. There's a man's private life. The public life is how he's perceived when he's in a place like this. This is your public life. People see you. You're going to, you know, hopefully put on your best. You know, and try to, you know, look decent, look like a good Christian, even if you know you're a sorry one. That's public life. Then there's private life. That's how you live in home, at home, around your family and the people that know you. But then there's the thought life. That's that secret place that you don't... Remember, he said, I didn't want to say anything about what I was thinking. And by the way, you don't have to say everything you're thinking. You might want to just hold on to that for a while. Because what you're fixing, your thoughts could be foolish and ignorant. And if you say what you're thinking and your thoughts are foolish and ignorant, that means what you're going to say is foolish and ignorant. So the best thing to do is just don't say anything until you get those thoughts run through the x-ray of the Word of God. Because what our text told us is the key. Remember, we're talking about Philippians 4, 8, that, and I know we've gone a long way around, but you've got to look at lay this stuff out and put it together piece by piece. The recipe for rest, the peace of God, your praise life, your prayer life, but your proper thought life. Because you can see how your thought life can get all kinds of feelings and emotions stirred up that are wrong. And if you go making decisions based off on these emotions and feelings, it's hard to go back and correct them sometimes. Then the old pride steps in. Somebody leaves a church and they find out later, you know something? I was just emotional. And my thought life got the best of me and I got to listen to the devil. I got to listen to my thoughts. And now I need to go back and make an apology. I need to go back and get right. And then the pride steps up and says, no, don't do that. You'd look foolish. Well, you already do. You might as well just go ahead and get, get it, make it right, you know. But he said this. He said, casting down and taking captive every thought. Did you get that? Every thought. Not some, but every thought. He said, it's hard to control the thoughts. Well... By the help of God, you can. I think there was some old preacher, I don't know who said it originally, but you've heard it. You can't, thoughts are something that run. People all the time say, there was, I had so many thoughts running through my mind. Okay, the old preacher said this, whoever it was, I don't know who to give credit to this quote, but he said, you can't, just like thoughts, he said, you can't keep the birds, thoughts, from flying overhead, but you can prevent them from making a nest in your hair. So the thoughts may come flying in there because the adversary can put stuff in your mind and don't think, listen, he's not down at the bar room tonight. He's here at East River Baptist Church. He's here looking to see who he can get in, the, in your mind, get your thoughts burning. While I thought, while I mused, the fires burned and you get to thinking on things. So he said, you got to bring those thoughts into uh, under captivity, under obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, listen, I'm closing right here. There's two things to do. When that thought comes, whatever it is, arrest it. You know how you arrest something? You stop it. The thoughts running through your mind? Okay, stop that thought. Say, stop. Hang on, hang on. Who? What's your name? Who sent you here? Interrogate that thought. Arrest it. You know what happens when you get arrested? They start asking you questions. So you, you have the power and the authority by the name of Jesus Christ to catch those thoughts. You say, preacher, this is kind of getting weird. Because you're kind of like saying we're supposed to be talking to ourselves. Read Psalm 42. Why art thou disquieted? Well, oh my soul, why art thou cast down within me? Why art thou disquieted in me? He says that three times in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. He's talking to himself. He's examining. He's interviewing his mind, if you will, his soul. So you arrest the thought. You slap the cuffs on it, if you will. You sit it down and say, who sent you? And you begin to inspect it. So you arrest it. Number two, you test it. Arrest the thought. Stop it. 
You say, what are you talking about? I'll give you a quick example. On Sunday mornings, you know what I discovered, brother? I discovered that my spirit gets more easily agitated and fouled as a preacher about 7, 8 o'clock on Sunday morning. Why do you suppose that is? Is there any divine business that's fixing to happen? Is there any transaction? And, and all of a sudden you start thinking about... You ever been going down the road, get to thinking about something that could have happened 10, 15 years ago, some conversation that got heated in the lobby or the parking lot, and you can work up a mad all over again. I mean, you're by yourself in the car and you're driving that something triggers that thought and you begin to turn it over. And you're going, boy, I tell you what. If I had that over, I tell you what I'd say. I'd say this and then I'd say this. And then I'd just turn around and walk off. Somebody needs to tell them, you know, right? And you find your jaw clenching, you know, and you get out of the car and slam the door and go in. Your kids say, hey, dad. You say, get away from me. They're going, well, what's wrong with you? Nothing. I'll tell you what's wrong with you. You got to thinking on something. It stirred up an emotion. Arrest the thought. Stop it. Then test it. Test it with what? Only one thing to test it with. The truth. Jesus prayed and said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So you go to the Bible and you say, am I supposed to be thinking these things? Is this, is this a proper thought? There will be some proverb, some truth that will say, you don't know the whole story, so quit even thinking on it. You don't have all the truth. You're surmising and you're coloring in the pictures of the, uh, the parts of the puzzle that you don't have. And, and uh, you arrest that thought. You stop it. Then you test that thought with the Word of God. The only thing, the only thing that will break the back of a lie is the, the full brunt of the truth. Submit yourselves unto God and resist the devil. He'll flee from you. And here's what you got to do. You got to learn how you, you can almost tell when it's the devil that's coming and he's messing with your thoughts. Because many times what he'll do is he wants to beat you down. He wants to get you, get you discouraged, get you angry, get you in a frame of mind that is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And I've thought about this. I heard one writer, I read one writer who said, we live on the wrong side of the conjunction. And you say, what, what's, what do you mean the wrong side of the conjunction? A conjunction, the word but, B-U-T, is a conjunction. And they used to teach English in school. I don't know if they do anymore or not. But that connects, and, and it, it's a, it's, you know, it connects two sentences and, and you know, the, the different sides of the sentence. It's a conjunction. It puts two contrasting thoughts together. And he says, we as Christians need to live on the right side of the conjunction. Say, like what? Well, there's truth in the Bible that say, says things like this. In Ephesians 5, verse 8, says, For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. So you're going to live on one side of that conjunction or the other. You know what? I, I've kind of struck this from my vocabulary. I quit saying, well, I'm just an old poor sinner saved by grace. That's a true statement. But I'm more than an old sinner now. The Bible says I'm a new creature. Now, I still struggle with sin. This is not about a sinless perfection thing, nothing like that. It's just that, you know what? The devil will come and steal your identification from you real easily. Get you thinking about yourself, not the way God sees you, but the way he wants you to feel about you. This is all Bible. This may sound like pop psychology, but it's truth. It's doctrine. It's scripture. Get on the other side of the conjunction. Once I was that... But now this is what I am. Whether I feel that or not, I don't, if the devil comes and accuses me and he is the accuser of the brethren, he is whispering thoughts into your mind and you get to thinking down about yourself. You get to thinking wrong about situations and people and even yourself as a Christian and it will depress you. It will create an emotion because of how you're thinking. What do you do? You take the truth of the word of God and if God said this is what you were but this is what you are now, you get on the right side of the conjunction. So yeah, I used to be darkness but now I am light. Because I'm in Christ and He's in me. And when you start living, that's the truth. And a man behaves what he believes. And so all I'm telling you is let this book renew your mind and get your thoughts under the obedience of Jesus Christ. How do you do that? Take them captive. Arrest them and then test them. And whatever is untrue, put the boot on it. Say, I will not be controlled by that thought. 
Because that's not true. But if it's true, you grab hold of it, you cherish it. I remember Brother Ron Ralph preaching a message 20 years ago, one of the first messages I heard him preach. He preached out of 2 Corinthians 10. I heard it, but I didn't appreciate it like I should have. He said, you're to check the thought and then chase it or cherish it. And that's, that's about as simple and about as true uh, a powerhouse truth as you'll ever get. You check every thought. If you get to thinking, you know, my pastor ignored me. And I'm thinking that he's just kind of, he's not, you know what? He's not very friendly. Arrest it. Test it. Say out, 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 out. I, I go back in my mind and I think about how my pastor helped me. And if any thought comes to my mind that makes me want to say, I don't know if I like that or not. Better watch. Because your thoughts will get to burning and you'll get to going in directions and making decisions off your emotions that those thoughts, those false thoughts create. I know this is a lot of information, but man, this stuff, the Bible says, great peace have they which love thy law, nothing shall offend them. And the peace, because you've got your mind stayed on him. So you take the truth and you check all these thoughts and you bring it underneath there and you say, that's not true. And I'm not going to let that thought control how I feel. Because if I let it do that, my feelings will get me all messed up and I'll end up out of church. Or I'll end up in a mess. Or they'll find me dead in a hotel somewhere. I'm talking about thought. You better get your thought life under control. It's a serious bit. Think on these things. And if you go through that list of eight things, it's all good, pure thought, lovely things, good things. And if you want the peace of God, you've got to get the proper thought life going on. Brother Clark, would you come?